think uh, we have all questioned our, our worth or how qualified we are to maybe even be a part of God's family before, uh, and uh, we're, we're going to address that a little bit this morning. I, uh, I think we're finally going to have a little bit of fall uh, coming up. You, we've kind of endured the last couple of weeks of summer, you know, kind of a little bit more warm than maybe we, we would like, but I, I know it's supposed to be fall. I've been to a, a high school football game. I've experienced some of those things, you know. I know uh, many of the area high schools will be having homecoming festivities coming up very soon. This is a big deal in high school. I, I, you know, I have a daughter who is a senior this year and another daughter who's a sophomore. They're talking about their homecoming events and, and what's going on. Uh, I, I received this from their high school, kind of advertising what's coming up. And, uh, you know, their theme is bringing back the 80s. We, we could stop and address the sort of emotions that come up you know, when uh, your high school student talks about the 80s like it's ancient history, uh, for, for a few of us that uh, sort of, that's, there's, some, there's some feelings to work through there, right? I mean, we're a little concerned about that, but uh, all sort of events. I know that I, I, this is just what I have easy access to, my, my kids' high school. I know, you know, all the high schools have these sorts of activities. There's parades and there's uh, parties and there's a uh, you know, football game and then uh, homecoming king and queen and, and, and uh, all of that and, and people get excited about this. It's a, it's a pretty big deal. I, I overheard one mom talking about her daughter's plans for homecoming and she's involved in this homecoming royalty and, and whatnot and so uh, her, this mom's daughter thought that uh, she needed four new dresses for the week of homecoming for the, uh, for the one one for the assembly and one for the, you know, homecoming dance and one for the, the night at the football game and another one for some other event. And, and man, it's a big deal. It's all kinds of stuff. And, and homecoming king and queen. I, I, I don't mean to shock you guys, but when I was in high school, uh, I was not a homecoming king candidate. I, I know, you're taken aback and, and it's hard for you to believe, but I wasn't. Uh, in my high school, way back in 1993, they had a uh, they had an alternative kind of thing, a, a celebration that paralleled Homecoming Week. And in one of the events that our high school had before the you know Friday night football game, the night before, they had this bonfire. And at this bonfire, they crowned kind of this alternative uh, king and queen. And they called these folks the Hobo King. And Queen. I have no idea why we did this or where it came from, but I know that while I wasn't a homecoming king candidate, that I was not worth worthy of you know this kind of royalty. I was a hobo king candidate because evidently my peers knew that I'd be a really good bum, and so you know that's kind of my high school heritage. And, and I suppose, you know, high school can be one of those times when you kind of look back and, and everybody's trying to figure out, you know, their worth and where their worth comes from and, and how they're going to fit in. And maybe you look back at those years and you think, oh man, I really questioned that and I'm still struggling with that. Or maybe, maybe it was a relationship in your past that had kind of caused those sorts of emotions. Or perhaps it was, you know, last week at work when you felt that way and you wondered, you know, it, it, do I deserve deserve to be here? Can I fit in? Can I, can I be a part of this? And, and you know what, I'm disappointed to say, but sometimes it's been church that has 
created or caused or stirred up those sorts of emotions in some of us where we, were, we wonder about our worth and our value and whether we belong and can we fit in. And, and uh, we certainly have all uh, sort of asked those questions through the years, some of us more than others, but all of us has, have asked those sorts of questions. And we can answer questions about our worth uh, today. We're going to do that. And I, I think there's a story in Mark chapter 5, verse 24 to 34, that, that uh, teaches us about an, an interesting encounter that Jesus has with a whole bunch of people, really a crowd of people, but especially with this one woman and the opportunity that he has to, uh, to teach her about her worth in his eyes. And, and while he's doing that, he's teaching us about our worth in his eyes. And I think this this section of scripture in Mark chapter 5 verses 24 to 34 raises three questions that we need to answer this morning as we consider you know what's our worth in the eyes of Jesus and and so we're going to do that this morning in Mark uh, chapter 5 uh, maybe you're using your device to read God's word this morning uh, I hope you've all downloaded Wallula's uh, app uh, if you haven't done that go to the app store and do that all this information the outline and and the scripture reference is available there uh, if you're using the welcome packet, there's a outline on the back of that, a page number at the top of that outline that'll take you quickly to the fifth chapter of the book of Mark and one of the Bibles you can find in the chair backs around you. Mark chapter 5. We're going to begin reading at the end. We're going to catch verse 24 kind of right in the middle. This is an interesting story that's sandwiched between another story that we'll take a look at next week. And so we're going to start in the middle of verse 24 and read through verse 34 today in Mark Mark chapter 5, this is what God's Word says. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. All right, an interesting story, and I think it raises three questions that we need to answer this, this morning. Question number one is, who can approach Jesus? Who can approach Jesus? Let's take a look at where we, we pick up our story in the middle of verse 24, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And this is a difference from last week, uh, quite a difference from last week when we saw Jesus uh, land on the other side of the lake, and, and he was met by a, a whole crowd of demons that were possessing this one individual man, but it was only this one guy who ran up and fell down at the feet of Jesus last week. And now, uh, today, 
as Jesus has sailed back to the other side of the lake, he's met with this whole crowd of people who Scripture describes as thronging him, as, as crowding him. As uh, Maybe some translations say that this crowd pressed up against him. This, this Greek word that is translated in, in the ESV in verse 24 as thronged is the same Greek word that's used in Luke uh, chapter 8. Uh, verse 45 if you read Luke chapter 8 you're going to read this parable that Jesus tells about some seed and and scattered in different land and, and how the seed reacts and and if you remember that there were some weeds that grew up among the seed, and uh, it strangled out the good crop. It strangled out the good seed, wouldn't allow it to grow. That's the same Greek word that's used here for this, this idea of thronged, this crowd that is pressing against Jesus. There is this uh, uh, really large crowd that Jesus has encountered, and he's trying to make his way uh, to this uh, important guy's house, and we're going we're gonna to read more about that next week, but he's on his way somewhere. He's, he's heading in a certain direction, and this crowd is pressing among him. We can imagine what this scene is like. You, you've experienced this. You know, if you, you've if you've waited online somewhere, you know that there's a difference between waiting in a line with three people and maybe 30 people and maybe 300 people or even 3,000 people, right? There's a difference there. If you're waiting online with three people, then everybody has plenty of space. You know, there'll be the first person in line, and then there'll kind of be a person-sized gap in the next person in line, kind of a person-sized gap in the next person in line. Everybody hanging out. We've got plenty of elbow room all kinds of personal space. You put 30 people in that line and it's sort of kindergarten, single file. You know, you're, you're, you're very much more close to the next person in line. You put 300 people in that line, you're kind of like, whoa, what happened? You know, 3,000 people and nobody has any space of their own, right? I want to I carry those orange cones and if I wasn't afraid of the jokes, I would and put them down around me in the line, right? I, I need a little space. And, and so we can imagine what Jesus and his disciples are experiencing here in this crowd, this really large crowd. And they're all interested in being next to Jesus. They want to be as close to Jesus as they can. They want to see what he does. They want to hear what he says. And Jesus and his disciples have this mission. They have this purpose. They have this reason for being there. And they're heading in that direction. And it's sort of an emergency, as we'll see next week. This, this guy's daughter is really sick. And so it's an emergency that Jesus arrives there. They're heading there and they can't make much progress because of this crowd of people pressing in around Jesus. It, it's sort of uncomfortable. And in the midst of this crowd, we're going to meet this one individual woman. Verse 25 says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. All right, and so what do we know about this woman that we meet? We, we know that this woman had spent 12 years in, in kind of this physical discomfort. She had been sick and bleeding for 12 years. This, this 12 years of illness had led to a financial strain, hadn't it? She spent all that she had seeking treatment for this illness. She was emotionally spent. If you've ever spent a season, endured a season in life like this, you know that just emotionally you get worn out. 
You're tired. You know, as much as our friend last week who we met, who was possessed by these, these demons, was at his wit's end, well, this woman this week is, is at her wit's end as well. Twelve years, and, and she hasn't made any progress. Scripture says is that, that she was no better off. In fact, she was worse. You know, she was heading in the wrong direction. And so physically she's worn out. Financially she's worn out. Emotionally she's worn out. And what, what we know with a little study and a little understanding here, we realize that spiritually she's worn out as well. That spiritually there's, there's, no, there's no place for her to turn. If, if you look and, and you read, you want some really interesting reading, go read Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25 to 33 this afternoon, all right? Leviticus chapter 15, you'll read a part of God's law that, that would put some really uh, heavy restrictions on this woman socially because of her illness. She would have been excluded from, from temple worship. Anyone who touched her would have been made unclean as well and have been excluded for a period of time from temple worship. And so that leads to just other people's attitude about her changing, doesn't it? You know, they don't want to be too close. They don't want to have uh, too close a contact or relationship with her. Her life is, is just at kind of the end of the road. She's, she's the last person that maybe should have been in this crowd coming up to Jesus. In fact, when you, you compare her to, to uh, this guy that we, we nicknamed Harry last week, you know, this guy who was possessed by all these demons, and we know that his life was out of control, that he, when he ran up to Jesus, he was naked, he had been hitting himself with rocks, inflicting himself with harm, he was shouting, he was possessed by these evil spirits, he was ostracized, if he was interested in worship, he would have been unable able to worship. He had no human contact. Uh, you compare him to this woman, though, and, and you realize while there's significant differences, there are some real similarities as well. For over 12 years, this woman had been sick. She was unable to worship. She was unclean. She had no uh, or really limited human contact. She was out of options. She had spent all that she had. She had gone to all of the resources, all the places that she knew to go. She was out of options. And, and so she was sort of in the same place as, as our friend Harry last week with this one really, really major difference. The biggest difference between these two is that I'm not sure Harry recognized the state that he was in. We don't know, if Harry is a Gentile, we don't know his interest in worshiping the one true God. I believe that this woman recognized the impact that her situation had created in her life, especially spiritually and, and relationally on so many levels. She recognized this and she knew that she had no other options than to go to Jesus. And while if she asked permission, maybe his disciples would, would have said, we're not really sure. We know that the religious leaders would have said, no, you can't, you can't be in this crowd. You can't come meet with this teacher. You'll, you'll make him unclean. You can't take these steps. We know that in a very real way, other people's religion were limiting this woman's opportunity to approach Jesus. This is what I need you to know that you should never allow someone else's religion to limit your ability to approach Jesus. When we ask ourselves the question, who should approach Jesus? 
Man, that's every one of us. No matter where you find yourself on the scale, no matter if you find yourself at the sort of the end of your rope like this woman or like Harry last week in the beginning of chapter 5, you, 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 you are called to approach Jesus. Jesus wants to hear from you. He loves you so much that He wants you to, to reach out and, for, for Him just like this woman did. Every one of us should approach Jesus. No matter where we see ourselves sort of in our journey with Him, no matter how we hear from other people that we don't belong or ought not do that, we are called and Jesus desires for us to approach Him. So every one of us should approach Jesus. How should we approach Him then becomes question number two. How should we approach Jesus? Take a look at verse 27. She, heard, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? I think these verses are really interesting. First, we, we maybe have some understanding of why there's such a crowd, right? These people had heard about Jesus. They had heard reports about him. They understood that there was something significant about this guy. They wanted to see for themselves what he was, say, what he was doing. They wanted to hear for themselves what he was teaching. You know, a, our, our vision statement here at Wallula Christian Church says that Wallula Christian Church exists to glorify God by equipping believers and transforming the casual. That word casual was, was chosen for a reason. We, when we uh, kind of study the area that we're in, we, we realize that most folks have heard the reports about Jesus. They have had some kind of connection to Jesus. Maybe that was, you know, Sunday school when they visited grandma, or maybe that was uh, a life lifelong connection with the church and, and for whatever reason they kind of walked away or they were burned by the church at some point and kind of started to ignore uh, that and, and didn't make uh, God and spiritual things a high priority in their life for a while or maybe it was just remembering prayer time before Sunday dinner at mom and dad's or what, whatever it was uh, people have some kind of connection with Jesus. In fact when you consider just world religions and different world views around the world Everybody has heard some reports about Jesus. Everybody has something to say about Jesus. Uh, Muslims, for instance, believe that Jesus was one of Islam's many prophets. Mormons believe that God created Jesus through a relationship with one of his celestial wives. Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was and is merely an angel who is just one of the many gods they say to exist. Uh, uh, Hindus believe that Jesus was one of the many great and holy men. Many Hindus believe that Jesus was a good teacher and perhaps uh, one of the most important 330 teachers that they believe in. Buddhists believe that Jesus was an enlightened man. Uh, do they believe that he was God? No. And so uh, you kind of run down the list and, and kind of no matter where people fall on, on the belief system, everyone has something to say about who Jesus is. Everybody has heard these reports. Uh, about Jesus and, and everyone has to come to terms with that and this woman was in that same spot she had heard reports about Jesus and she, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched 
his garments. Verse 28 says, For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, this is where the woman is at. She, she has heard about Jesus and the difference that he's made in some people's lives. And so she says, I, I need some of that. And she kind of has this attitude uh, about herself that says, I can't really come up to Jesus and have this conversation with him, and maybe I can just sneak in behind him and touch his garments, because there was this superstition and kind of this idea about magic in, in the first century, that if you encountered somebody of power, that power was transferred sort of magically or supernaturally uh, through osmosis to those folks' clothes. And so if you could even touch their garments, you you might be receive some of that power. And so this woman's faith is all kind of mixed up and it's intermingled with the superstition and, and uh, other ideas of the age. And she says, maybe I can just sneak this healing from Jesus. And so she does wander up or make her way through this crowd. Wander's the wrong word. She squeezes her way through this crowd to, to touch Jesus' garments. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Man, verse 29 is such a remarkable verse. Because what we know about this woman is, is that her faith is completely imperfect. You know, you, you look at all those world religions and they have these, these misconceptions about who Jesus is. And this woman had this misconception about who Jesus is. The difference perhaps is that this woman made an effort to go meet Jesus to learn about him. And even though her faith was imperfect, Jesus received this, right? Her, her faith uh, allowed her to be healed. And Jesus in verse 30, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? Oh, we don't know what this looks like. It's, it's one of my favorite verses in the story because Jesus realizes that power is a has, has left him. And, and it m reminds us of, you know, like watching a video game or playing a video game and you kind of, you lose energy through the video game and you can kind of see the bars decrease on, on your level of fitness and, and power. And, and probably that's not what's happening here. Uh, I, a few weeks ago, I had a chance to go watch my son Clayton play baseball, uh, and, and that was fun. And, and just yesterday, I was watching Lacey play softball. And when I watch my kids play uh, baseball or softball, I, I sometimes find myself paying attention to the base coaches. I'm sort of fascinated by uh, these different folks who coach the bases. And, and uh, I just wonder, you know, how long they've been doing this. You kind of grow up watching your kids and maybe coaching your kids uh, play baseball and softball like I did. And, and when they're little, you you feel like you have to be closer to home plate, I suppose because they're little, right? And so you stand closer to home plate, and it's no big deal because they're little, and even when they hit the ball, you know, you can stop it and catch it barehanded, and then, then they get bigger and you start to move back, you know, at least if you have any sense, you start to move back. Now, there's some of these coaches, though, that still think these kids are like 10 years old, and they get real close, and, and a few of these coaches you don't worry about. All right, they're going to be fine. You know, you can tell that she's an athlete. She can handle it. You know, no sweat. And there are some of these coaches you see out there, and, and, and I start to pray for them when I watch them. 
because they are too close to these guys who are hitting the ball. And, and they even reach down and try to field the ground ball, the, you know, the foul balls. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, get out of the way. Don't get hurt. And, and you just realize that they, they don't have this ability that Jesus has. You know, they don't realize that power has left them. You know, they need to get out of the way. And I suppose this is the exact opposite of what is actually happening with Jesus. Because he's not a video game where he's wearing down. You know, he's on his way to this important guy's house because his daughter is sick. And what Jesus isn't concerned about is, you know, I have less power now that I'll need to perform the next miracle. You know, that's not what's going through Jesus' mind. But he realizes that God has, has healed this woman. He's absolutely capable, and he realizes that, that God has, has made a difference in this woman's life. And, and, and so it's amazing to me that he stops, and in verse 30, he asks, Who touched my garment? The disciples, we're going to find out, think, this is a really crazy question to ask. But Jesus loves this woman enough that he stops the parade, he stops his mission, where he's heading. And he asks, you know, who is, who is it that touched my garment? I want to have a conversation with you. You know, how, how should we approach Jesus? You know, we should approach Jesus. We should come and, and seek him out. We should, we should research who he is. We should learn as much as we can about him. We should begin a relationship with him, you know, wherever we are and, and however we can, just like this woman, you know, snuck her way through this huge crowd, and reached out to just touch a piece of Jesus. Question number three is, what should we do when we approach him? Verse 31 says, And his disciples said to him, You see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? They say, Jesus, this is a ridiculous question. This whole crowd is, is surrounding, pressing in on us. You ask, Who touched us? Who didn't touch? Everybody touched us, Jesus. You know, why are you asking this question? And he looked around to see who had done it. Maybe, maybe the most significant verse in this section of teaching is verse 32. And he looked around to see who had done it. Uh, several years ago, it's, it's been a long time, Zoe, uh, who's now a sophomore in high school, was just a preschooler at the time. She was a little, little girl. We were invited by some friends to go, go camping, uh, and usually when we went with them, we went to this, this lake, and we camped near the lake, and for whatever reason, we couldn't do that. And so we stayed uh, in the town where the lake was on the farm of their grandparents, this, their grandparents' farm. And so this is a group of, of families, adults, camping in the backyard of somebody you know, farm. And so it was a good time. I'm not sure why we did that, but I do remember one evening where, you know, having a campfire, doing that sort of thing. And, and we realized that the kids are all off doing their thing. And we're not sure where the youngest kid, Zoe, is at. And so we think, well, she must be with her brother and sister who are with these other kids, you know, by the, by the pond. And so we send somebody down. No, Zoe's not there. And so we think, well, Zoe must be over here. And so we go look over there, and Zoe's not there. And, and it begins, you just assume she's with brother and sister, she's with some of the other kids, and there are a few natural places to look. And, and so you're not worried at all. You're not concerned at all, right? She's going to be in one of these few options. And when she's not in the first place, 
you don't really worry because she's probably in the second place. But when she's not in the second place, you, you know, not really worried. You're not going to tell anybody you're worried because she's probably in the third place, but you're beginning to get a little concerned. And then she's not in the third place, and you think, you know, I've lost my toddler on this farm. She's been, you know, eaten by a cow or something. You know, you don't know what's happened. And so you, we, you start to divide up and you start to send everybody out to look for this little preschool girl. And the anxiety starts to build. It ends up, the end of the story is really simple. She had gone into the house and was hanging out with like grandma and watching TV or whatever. And so she was safe the entire time. But you, the anxiety starts to build and you start to search and you... you you expand the perimeter, so to speak. You keep looking further and further out, and you go in more and more places. And you know what wouldn't have happened in this story? Well, we wouldn't have stopped looking for Zoe. You know, don't tell her, but we like her. And so we would have kept looking for her. Uh, and, and I just think that this verse is so important because Jesus looks out to see who touched him. He wasn't upset because the power was gone. <laughs> He wasn't upset because, you know, other people said she was unclean. He loved this woman so much that he would keep looking for her. You know, where's she at? Who touched me? It goes on in, in verse 33, and the woman comes to Jesus. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. What should we do when we approach Jesus? Well, this woman does two things. The first is in fear and trembling, she falls down before Jesus. When we read these words, I think we rightly recognize, we rightly place this action with worship. You know, that, that she acknowledges that Jesus is, is powerful. She approaches them with some fear and with even some trembling. She's maybe worried about what he's going to say about kind of sneaking in or whatever. But she, she realizes that this guy is, is something else. That I'm not sure maybe. Maybe she wasn't sure exactly who he was or what he was all about. But she realized, man, we're not talking about just the, another teacher from down the road. And so she falls down. And I think we rightly recognize this as worship, in worship of him. And you're here this morning, right? Maybe some of you more reluctantly than others, but you're here this morning because some part of you recognizes that it's right to worship Jesus. All of us would maybe even agree on that. The, the second thing she does, though, is the thing that I, I've had trouble with in my life because she comes completely clean. She tells Jesus the whole truth. And it's not just that we think, well, you know, the, the religious leaders would say that she's been sinning because she comes into this crowd and she makes them unclean. That's not what she's unpacking. She's unpacking all the difficulty in her life. This last 12 years, and we ran down the list, didn't we? We talked about the physical impact and we talked about the emotional impact and we talked about the financial impact and we talked about the spiritual impact. And she's spilling her guts about all of that. All of the, those reasons and all of the stuff and all of the baggage that makes her question her worth to, to anybody, but especially to somebody like Jesus, she's saying out loud, 
And if you want to, if you want to take your worship, if you want to take your relationship with Jesus to, to another level, to a different place, then follow the example of this woman. Yeah, acknowledge that Jesus is worth worshiping. But acknowledge that Jesus is worth worshiping honestly, laying out all the stuff, all the stuff that, that sort of eats at you in the back of your mind that causes you to question whether you're worth being there in the first place. And you know what happens to the woman? The response that Jesus has. You know, she was maybe a little bit worried that she was going to be scolded, right? For kind of sneaking in. And he said to her, daughter, do you know that this is the only place in Scripture, that this is the only place in Scripture that Jesus speaks to a woman and addresses her as daughter? I think it's pretty cool. Because right away, he's saying, yeah, you're a part of my family. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in peace. You, you, we ought to recognize, you know, the, the Jewish, the Hebrew word shalom, that idea here. And, and that idea, you, you, shalom was used as a greeting and, and you know, to say goodbye, and, but it's more than that here. That idea of going in peace. This woman had unpacked all of the reasons that she wasn't in peace. And Jesus said, you know, you can cast all of those things on me. I've healed you. I'm enough for you. On this side of the cross, we ought to hear and we ought to think salvation. That Jesus has made a way for us to live in peace in His presence for all of eternity. And when we have a relationship with Him, when we approach Him, no matter what religion might say, when we approach Him, no matter what others might say, when we approach Him, no matter what the enemy is whispering in our ear, and we begin that relationship with Him, He makes a way for us to go in peace. How awesome. How amazing is that? And we can live that out in our lives with others as well. There's an old story that's told about a, a school teacher and a student. Her name was Miss Thompson. And Miss Thompson told her class every year that, you know, she didn't have any favorites. And maybe that wasn't exactly true. Maybe there were some favorites in her class. And, and, and what was worse with Miss Thompson is that maybe she had some students that she just didn't like. And one of those kids was a, a kid by the name of Teddy Stollard. And, and uh, it, we can understand why maybe she didn't like him so much. He wore a deadpan blank expression on his face his eyes were unfocused uh, when she spoke to Teddy he just shrugged his shoulders and didn't really respond his clothes were messed and his hair unkempt his, he wasn't attractive and he wasn't especially likable and, and maybe when Miss Thompson graded Teddy's papers she took a little extra joy in putting the check mark or the X next to the questions he missed she, she probably shouldn't have because she knew some of the background in Teddy's life she, she had read the records that said in first grade, Teddy shows promise with his work and attitude, but he has a poor home situation. In second grade, Teddy could do better. A mother is seriously ill. He receives little help at home. In third grade, Teddy's a good boy, but too serious. He's a slow learner. His mother died this year. In fourth grade, Teddy's very slow, but well-behaved. His father shows no interest. At Christmas that year, the kids brought some presents for their teachers, and they were bringing up their presents, and, and Teddy had uh, a present for his teacher as well. It was wrapped in 
brown paper and held together with scotch tape and it, obviously he had he had done this himself and he presented it to the teacher and Miss Thompson opened it up and out of the package fell a, an old rhinestone bracelet with you know stones missing in it and a, a half empty bottle of perfume and and kids began to sort of snicker around her and she at least had enough sense to put on the bracelet and to spray on the perfume and to say oh Teddy I love this bracelet and this perfume smells so beautiful and and the kids took her cue and started to ooh and awe. Ah. When school was over that day, you know, the kids started to disperse. Teddy hung back and, and he said to his teacher, Miss Thompson, uh, you smell just like my mother and her bracelet looks real pretty on you too. I'm glad you like my presence. When Teddy left, Miss Thompson uh, fell to her knees and prayed and, and asked God that he would help her to love all the kids, uh, even when they were difficult to do so. And when Christmas break was over and the children came back to school, they welcomed a new teacher. Miss Thompson had become a different person. She was no longer just a teacher. She'd become an agent of God, committed to loving her children and doing the things for them that would live on after her. Once that school year ended, uh, she lost track of Teddy a little bit. That happens to students and teachers until one day she received a letter from Teddy. It said this, Dear Miss Thompson, I wanted you to know, uh, to be the first to know, I'll be graduating second in my class. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note came. Dear Miss Thompson, they just told me I'll be graduating first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know the university hasn't been easy, but I've had a good four years. Love, Teddy Stollard. And four years later, Dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I'm Theodore Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. I want you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were still alive. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stollard. Miss Thompson went to that wedding and sat where Teddy's mother would have sat. She deserved to be there. She had done something for Teddy that he could never forget. Jesus loves us in such a significant way that he calls us, he welcomes us to approach him even when we're convinced that we shouldn't or can't or, or wouldn't be accepted. And he loves us and accepts us and, and he calls us son, he calls us daughter, he makes us a part of his family. He offers us a peace that we can enjoy and live in for all of eternity and we can love others in just that 